0: Uh, in, in my heart, I'm like, no, nah, man, there's something called truth that's uh, objective. It doesn't matter what you believe. It's still true. But I'm not a Christian. Nobody's witnessed to me. I'm just yearning for truth. I want stability. My world is spinning, uh, and I want something that's not moving so I can uh, regain uh, you know, clarity in life. And so that's what started me on the journey for truth.
1: Welcome to the Free Sermon Podcast of the Potter's House Church in Virginia Beach, Affiliated with Christian Fellowship Ministries. Our vision is winning souls, making disciples, and planting churches. It's Tuesday, where you're going to hear a powerful testimony of God's grace revealed in human lives. Each Tuesday, you'll hear Pastor Adam interviewing pastors from around the world to share the mighty miracles that God has done in their lives to give you hope for yours. We share the stories of the men behind the messages you hear every other day on this podcast Keep in mind that the free version only includes a portion of the whole testimony interview. To listen to the full version, use the links in the show notes to subscribe via Apple Podcasts or Supercast.Tech. Every dollar goes to supporting world evangelism. Enjoy today's Testimony Tuesday.
2: To the VBPH Sermon Podcast, and we are here for another Testimony Tuesday. I am very excited and pleased to welcome Pastor Eric Barrientes from San Antonio, pastoring in Uh, Hanoi, Vietnam, Ho
0: Chi Minh City. Did I get all that right? City, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh,
2: okay. Well, I was just going off the uh, you know the uh, the book. (laughs) I never updated it, so I guess that that was my first mistake. I don't want people (laughs) to find me out here. So, okay, so. Right. Okay. So Ho Chi Minh City. And how long have you guys four been Four years. There? It's actually
0: four years, one
2: month. We got here February
0: 2019.
2: Yeah. February 2019. So all the way through the COVID insanity, yes. you guys have been there. And it
0: was a lot different over here because they locked us in our apartments and we couldn't leave and so yeah you can't leave your apartment complex some people had it worse than others my complex had like a grocery store at the bottom of it so it was all right and we could still get what we needed our resources and whatnot and then you had uh you had armored vehicles like tanks small tanks you know uh, going through the streets with the idea with uh, two ideas one is a silent idea one is like a, a known idea the the known idea is we're patriotic yeah we're going to get through this the other idea is we're not afraid to use this
2: <laughs> right yeah yeah well i suppose communists know how to scare <laughs> yeah, just, people babe. huh <laughs> well uh let me take the opportunity to welcome you and thank you for coming on the show we mm-hmm. appreciate your time um it is uh uh 8:57 p.m. here on the east coast which means it's 8 57 a.m. over there in Vietnam. So thank you for making the time after a morning prayer meeting on a Friday morning Ah, for us. We do appreciate it very much. Where we're
0: off right now. So it's 7 50 right now.
2: That's that's why the timing's a little off.
0: Okay, I got it.
2: Ah you you know why? Because there was a time change. So we planned oh man, I'm sorry. No worries, no worries. It's all good. (laughs) So my bad. But uh Anyway, thank you so much for, for being up bright and early for us and uh, taking the time to, yeah. to do an interview. And so, um, well, h- how long have you been a, a listener to the podcast? Uh,
0: just recently. Yeah, just recently.
2: Okay. Okay. And um, so, yeah, we, we uh, actually, I made contact with uh, Pastor TJ Horta, who's also <clears throat> in Vietnam. Yeah, or he's, here. he's here in Da Nang. Is he's halfway you- up Vietnam. Okay. Okay. So yeah, I've got him on the schedule also. So we're gonna have a we're gonna have Vietnam Sweet. month on the yeah. podcast here.
0: And you got Ruby right here. That's right. It's good stuff. Yeah.
2: Right? That's it. That so he's he's watching Damn. live. And and by the way, for those who are watching live on Riverside, on this platform here, you can uh, put in questions if you want to. You can submit your question if there's something that I missed, uh, or you wanna you wanna tell a story on. Pastor Eric here. That he doesn't want to tell. That would be a great mm. opportunity. So bring it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Pastor Eric, first of all, why don't you give us the uh, the conference style report? Give us the three to four minutes of uh, where you're from and your wife and uh, where uh, what God's doing all right, there. Cool. Uh,
0: so I am
2: from San Antonio,
0: born and raised. Uh, my wife's from San Antonio. Uh, Uh, We have three kids. I have an 18-year-old, a 14-year-old, and one who just turned 11 this week. Uh, Two boys and a girl. My girl is in the middle. And uh, we have been here in Saigon for four years. We took over a church. It was four and a half years old. Actually, we took over three churches, not at the same time. (laughs) We took over one in Florida. Then we took over one in Houston. Now we took this one over in Saigon and uh, God is helping us, uh, we, have, we have a very good momentum. We just got out of a rally with Pastor Ruby and uh, we had people come down from all over Vietnam, from Hanoi, from Da Nang. Uh, a lot of people gathered, probably about 140 people uh, for the rally, uh, suppo- supposed to be underground, uh, but have no spirit of fear, have dominion. Everybody is excited. And uh, stirred up for what God's doing. We have one baby church out. They're in District 4. Uh, he's been there since uh, August. He took over a church uh, from Stuart and Michelle Palacio. And then, uh, yeah, man, we're having a blast. We're living the dream. That's the way Jason Garcia would put it.
2: Yeah. yeah That's man. it, man. That's it. Praise God. Well, I, I'm, I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions because I want to know all about Vietnam. But uh, before we get to that, I would love to hear, you know, th- this, is, uh, this podcast, we get to do the deep dive into the uh, story of where you came from and how you got saved. So, uh, yeah, where did you grow up? You said you, you're from originally from yeah, San Antonio? San Antonio,
0: uh, all around San Antonio, the west side, the east side, the south side, and then eventually landed in the north side uh which are a lot of hoods, basically, and so uh yeah, I grew up over there near uh Zazamora and Winnipeg. It's one of the south side hoods, and uh that's where I spent the majority of my time uh yeah, and so uh what what, go, what was your family life like uh so my uh my father and mother they uh they uh never officially got married it was more like a uh a military adding a dependent issue so my father was in the military and uh, somehow or another he worked it out to where my mother got added on to one of the dependents uh but never went through like a ceremony never had like an actual wedding day <clears throat> and uh that was like my upbringing um uh, it was in that was on the east side that was for like the first five years of my life and uh that was rough it was a rough environment i have older brothers uh that are uh, yeah half brothers and uh, uh we'd get into trouble outside we'd have a lot of fun there playing basketball with the neighbors across the street but uh there was a lot of like uh, uh, arguing between my parents whatnot and so uh, a little rough upbringing
2: yeah. Okay. So um, so that, that roughness that you described, did you get into a lot of fights? Yeah, I got
0: into a lot of fights, uh, but not, not early on. Uh, I, uh, maybe around seven or eight years old, I uh, got into a few uh, uh, when I moved. I moved schools and uh, I moved sides of town. A lot of people didn't know me. And uh, I remember there was quite a few people that were trying to see what I was made of. And uh, I wasn't afraid at a young age. I remember uh, we used to run around the school. It was one of those the uh, physical education uh, things. And so we we take laps around the fields and whatnot. And uh, a group of, of uh, guys were, were trying to, you know, intimidate me. And I remember being young, man, little kid. But still, something inside of me said, "No, nah, I'm not running." What's up? And so uh, that's the <laughs> way that's the way it was. I had my older brothers; they would rough me up a little bit as well. So,
2: so we, you were the youngest of the family, or I'm, one of the I'm
0: like the middle man. So uh, there's a lot of half brothers and sisters. Uh, I don't I don't even know the order. Is that's how chaotic it is? Like as far as. Uh, who's mm. involved, who's not on what day somebody's, uh, uh, included in the mix and not. And so,
2: yeah. So yeah. Was it, uh, was it an un- unstructured environment? Like, uh, like did you have trouble getting, getting used to things because of the lack of family? Structure? Yeah,
0: for sure. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I remember, I, let me give you a couple of stories. I remember, uh, being, uh, I don't, I don't even remember the age very very young and i was outside in the front yard on the east side this is pecan valley and sergeant street and we used to play basketball at night with our neighbors there were a couple other boys in the front and uh and hoop with them and then one day my older brother the oldest uh, we're outside in the front and he's cussing he must have been maybe about 14 years old 13 years old right around there and uh, i'm i'm a young man myself and i'm start i started cussing with him and then uh, uh, that day, my father comes home, and the neighbors tell, me, "Hey, your boys are outside cussing." My father w- uh, was a Marine for uh, 22 years, and so uh, he was a Marine during that time. And he let me know he, took, he had one of those old school cowboy belts with a big old eagle buckle on the front from uh, San Antonio, Texas. And so, uh, yeah, that day uh, we we had a uh, we had a reckoning. <laughs> Yeah,
2: it must have left an impression. Yeah, on you. my
0: rear end, it sure did. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. Well, you remember? Did, did it actually? Um, I mean, did you did you need that? Did you look nah, back on it? No, it was
0: okay to cuss back then. With, uh... no, just kidding. Yeah, I needed that <laughs> for
2: sure. <laughs> it was, but yeah.
0: just to show how chaotic the situation was. Uh, yeah, one of the ways that my father would discipline. Was pretty interesting. Uh, he had the uh, combat boots, and so we would we would kneel down. He would make me kneel down, uh, and then hold the combat boots straight out in front of me, and just hold them straight. And uh, I guess uh, uh, he had some flashbacks from Vietnam. <laughs> Not sure. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> oh, so you were holding the boots kneeling straight down out until yeah, your arms couldn't. Down.
2: Oh, oh yeah. man.
0: Young age, young man doing that.
2: Well, that must have put some toughness in little you, bit. I suppose. No wonder you didn't back down when you the know, Bullies came. Bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, besides uh, besides the trouble in uh, getting into some scuffles, did, did you uh, find yourself um, getting into any other kind of trouble as a kid? Um, yeah, not really, not too much. Oh, so you were trying to keep your nose pretty clean? Yeah, I didn't then. like to get caught. Ah, yeah. okay. So the yeah. sneaky one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you did? Did you do all right in yeah, school? I did
0: all right. Uh, one of the things uh, I never, I never really applied myself. So I'd go to school, and uh, I'd be there. I'd have fun. Uh, interesting fact. My name Eric is uh, from a fifth grade uh, fifth grade classmate of my mother's. He was he was a class clown, and so I've been cursed, and so I like to make people laugh. It's what I do, uh, and uh, that's what I would do in school. I'd make people laugh. I'd make the teacher laugh. It would go well for a while, but then after a while, I, you got to calm down, and I and I wouldn't. So I'd get in a little bit of trouble. I uh, never really uh, uh, did my homework. I would always just do the work that was in the class and then I take the test and I did well enough in order just to keep passing.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, let's talk about your spiritual history. Did did your family ever expose you to any kind of religion or church life? Yeah, I remember
0: going to Catholic Church when I was really, really young. And I'm talking about once or twice, man. Uh, another time, I, re- I went to Cornerstone, it's a, uh, like a small mega church there in San Antonio with John Hagee. I remember going over there when I was really, really little in a maroon Cadillac. And uh, <clears throat> I remember one time I was there in church. I started getting really nauseated and not knowing what was going on. Uh, I thought me and church didn't get along. And so uh, I remember I got really sick in Cornerstone. And my father, he, uh, this is how little I was. He puts me upside down uh, and he has my, my, my head facing up and uh, I'm getting ready to throw up. So he's taking me, he's running me to the restroom. And I remember he barely made it in there. I started throwing up in the, in the toilet. And so at a young age, I thought, man, me and church, we just don't go. Every time we come, I get sick. Only years later to find out that the perfume that my mother wore I hated it. it. It it just got me sick, you know? And so, yeah, but few times went to church,
2: not, not uh, very much. Yeah. Okay. So, so, okay. So going into your teen years, uh, this is often a time when people make some poor choices yeah. and bad decisions that lead, lead to uh, some consequences. Um, do you look back on that time and, Recognize any of that kind of activity in your life? It was full of it.
0: It was full of it. I started smoking weed when I was 11 years old out of a little foil pipe that you would put foil around a pencil. You'd twist it up. And actually, I shouldn't be giving any instructions right now. But anyways, (laughs) at 11 years old, at the bus stop, uh, one of my neighbors, uh, she smoked weed with my sister. And then I ended up smoking as well. And so all the way through my teenage years was a little bit of drugs here and there until it started getting serious towards the the end
2: of my teenage years. Wow, so um, yeah, that's that's not a cheap habit. Uh, That means, how were you able to get your hands on this stuff? Other people
0: smoked weed and I guess they didn't wanna smoke alone. And uh, I made them laugh, so they gave me some weed. (laughs)
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you you know, they've legalized this stuff now, which is crazy to me. Um, But can can you talk about how, you know, like, how do you think that it affected you when you as you were growing up? Weed? How did it affect me? I think, uh, you know what, honestly, uh, because I didn't
0: have like a fantastic relationship with my father, I had a level of insecurities. And uh, when I started smoking weed, yeah, it would make me feel good. It would be like, living some uh, crazy dream for a, a few hours, you know, uh, but it also uh, intensified the insecurities, the paranoia. And so uh, it wasn't a, a really good mix. And then there's that uh, peer pressure desire right around the same age. And so it, it ended up pushing me deeper. It definitely was a gateway drug.
2: Yeah. Okay. Well, describe where it took you next so,
0: Eleven years old, smoking weed. Uh, I didn't smoke all the time; smoked a few times. And then, uh, about a couple of years later, then I started smoking weed a lot with with uh, some other guys. And uh, one time, uh, the weed that we got, it was laced with something. I, I never figured out what it was laced with. And I got on a, re- a weird trip. Uh, started climbing a tree, and, and the guys are, are chasing me. It's, it was weird. Uh, and then, uh, started drinking, uh, started drinking beer, uh, and alcohol MD 2020s and getting wasted at, at a young age, you're looking at like maybe 13, 14 Mm. years old. And then Mike's heart, Mike's heart, Mm. lemonades and smearing you know, that stuff's like candy for a kid. Then it has a, the punch of alcohol in it. And so, yeah, that was for like the next few years and it was really uh, just weed and that beer and alcohol. Then uh, uh, later on, I remember, I forgot who it was, but somebody had, they had introduced me to meth and it looked harmless because uh, they had it on some foil and uh, they lit it up, it turned into some vapor and all you did was uh, inhale it and so I remember I did that a few times, but that was it. And then uh, I, I moved on from that, yeah. And then uh, during high school, uh, hung out with uh, some some uh, Cholos there in San Antonio and uh, a bunch of different people, people who just like to get wasted. And so uh, that's what I would do uh, in, in high school. I met uh, my son's mother, my oldest son's mother, and uh, she ended up getting pregnant towards the end of high school. My last year, my senior year, she's pregnant. I have to break the news to my family. And so I let them know I thought I was going to get killed, you know, skinned alive, tarred, tarred and feathered. Uh, but uh, mm-hmm. my mother was really understanding and patient with me, although it still was a wake-up call. It was a time to take responsibility. And so uh, I... I was uh, I had the fear that I wasn't going to graduate high school. So then right at the end, I started applying myself and, and pulled it out, graduated high school. And I remember right after I graduated, I had the idea, okay, I, I'm going to do this right. Uh, I'm going to do my best to raise my son. I'm going to be responsible. I'm going to take care of this, even though like this isn't the perfect way to establish something. Uh, family, I'm gonna do my best, and so I, I told myself uh, without anybody uh, giving me advice or, or trying to help me, I'm gonna quit smoking weed. I'm not gonna be doing that. I'm not gonna waste my life. I'm not gonna turn into some loser. And so I did for a little while. And I, I remember during that time that I was like, man, I can't celebrate with nobody that I've, you know, not smoked weed for a long time because nobody knew. I, I was pretty uh, good mm. at being sneaky and so and hiding it. And so uh yeah then I started working. I uh I'm I'm kind of jumping around. I, uh during 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 high school okay. I was a, I was a skater. I was a baller. I I loved to play basketball, I loved to skate and uh, I got pretty good at it. I could have been an amateur if I would have focused on it, but I didn't want to get injured and I couldn't go to work. I, I really wanted to take care of my boy. And so uh, I quit skating. And then I started working uh mm. Uh, 58 hours a week, uh, building frack Sanders, frack Sanders are those huge 18 wheelers. They have four compartments on the side of the 18 wheeler with a, uh, hydraulics, uh, conveyor belt running through the middle. And it just moves material. You take it to oil fields, whatnot. And so I did that for about 11, 11 months. And then uh, during that time, during uh, one of those lunch breaks, I had a, uh, uh, a friend who would pick me up from my house, take me to work, and then drop me off in the evening after work. This guy really helped me out. And one day, he uh, passed me a, a CD case, one of those old school, you know, you don't, you don't hear about those or see those anymore. But uh, he passed me a CD case, and on top of it, there was a line of coke. And so, uh, uh, this is during lunch. Uh, I feel a little bit of the pressure. I mean, this guy's helping me out. And so, uh, I, I said, okay, did a line of coke, went back to work, paranoid, super, super paranoid. Uh, I'm walking around like, okay, everybody knows I'm coked up right now. My eyes are bugging. Uh, I'm breathing all funny going, you know, and, uh, smoking <laughs> cigarette after cigarette and, uh, uh, that, and then I got away with it. And when, once I got away with it, mm. then I was like, Oh, I can handle this. I could do this. And so I started doing cocaine a lot.
2: Yeah. yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, what I was going to comment on, which is interesting to me is how the, how the arrival of your son into the mix, uh, added responsibility to your life, which was actually, a good Absolutely. Thing. um, it, it. at least you know, gave you that pressure to begin applying yourself, and I think this is something that a lot of young men don't really realize is that they need responsibility. And I'm not advocating that they go out and get a girl pregnant, but what yeah, I'm no, saying I still, is that don't you know, do that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, unless you're married to her. But uh, the the idea is that when you have that responsibility, that is actually a refining tool that God uses to, to change us. And I, I look at young men these days that, you know, they're sitting on their rear end until they're 25, 27 and uh, you know, not getting serious about life. I feel bad for them, man. They need some, they need some pressure in life because this is how you, you become a <clears throat> yeah. man, right? Every
0: decade sets up the next decade. And there's a book called how to ruin your life by 30 by Steve Farrar. I definitely recommend young people reading that book. And it's uh, one of the first things it says is ignore cause and effect, ignore responsibility. I think Jordan Peterson, the reason why he's hitting well with so many people is because he hones in on responsibility. If you will take up responsibility, it'll add meaning to your life
2: and you'll begin to feel good about who you are.
1: Yeah. Mm.
2: Yeah, that's really good. So, well, you, you were on the right track for a minute there trying to do right for your son. And uh, that line of coke changed changed yeah, it things. Sure, it sure did. So uh, what did that, what did that lead to? I went into
0: a, a, another level, another stage of partying and uh, doing coke. I started, uh, I got really addicted to cocaine. I loved being filled with uh, cocaine. Your senses are, are super alert. I'm not sure exactly what chemicals are released in your brain, uh, but you're able to move uh, very, very fast-paced, process things very quickly. And so it got very addicting. And then uh, after cocaine, it, it, it was good for a while, but then it started leveling out. Uh, it, I wasn't getting that same high. So then I went to the next thing, which was uh, either crank or crack, something similar to that. And then I uh, did that for a few times and then somehow or another uh, crystal meth got in the mix. When crystal meth got in the mix, that's where everything started speeding up very, very quickly. Um, uh, things started to fall apart real quick. I started staying up for days on, on end without any sleep. Uh, no problem. How old I was, were you? uh, 18. I was 18 years old. You know what they God. call, it, uh, uh, smoking crystal meth. They call it chasing the dragon Sinners call it mm. that it's exactly what it is. Why? I, I don't know why they call it. Maybe, I, maybe when, uh, one of the first ways I did it, they had it on foil, burn the bottom of, of the foil, and then it steams up. And maybe I guess the smoke looks like a dragon and you chase it and you're inhaling it. You know, you're, you're taking
2: it in your system and that's how you you get high. Well, I know that this is one of the most destructive drugs that people can take. What what did this begin to do in, in you? Uh, it gave me a lot of
0: energy. Uh, it made me uh it actually ended up making me irresponsible and uh, i i uh, got fired from my job i got fired from that first job that i was at for 11 months we had a contract company that worked on that job with us and uh, i didn't get along with the bosses they they were pretty racist they would say some uh racist things about mexicans and so uh uh i didn't really care about that job but the contract company all of their workers which was probably about 15 to 20 guys i trained them on uh, measuring the hydraulic hoses the fittings the piping uh, how to put things on how to work and they saw that i wasn't lazy i just didn't get along with with uh the managers and so as soon as i got fired i was making 7.75 an hour the the very next day they they saw that i needed a job they gave me a job with like a a three or four dollar raise and so that that was cool and then i that company first company best for apco it's it's, i think now it's called apco the second company was hiroko international and uh, so then i started working with that other company for a while but i'm doing crystal meth now and so uh, i'm i'm missing work some days some days i'm going to work it got it got really bad, man. Where I would uh, be doing crystal meth all the time. <clears throat> I, there's a, a regular mm. household light bulbs that uh, I learned how to take apart just to use it as a pipe. You take off that black part on the top, to peel off the fo- the uh, metal around the bulb, and this is how bad it was. This this is where I was. Uh, I, I would put a straw in there, put the meth in there, be driving down the highway on 410 with my knee, holding the light bulb with one hand, holding the lighter with the other hand, straw in my mouth, driving, going maybe 75 miles an hour down the highway, smoking meth, like it was bad. (laughs) And then uh, ended up losing that job. And uh, then uh, that was right around Christmas. And so that devastated uh, our family, devastated. I, I I was filled with anger filled with paranoia. And uh, we got into some bad uh, family arguments. And uh, um, I ended up uh, getting income tax a few weeks later. And when you have a, a, a drug addict and an alcoholic that gets this flood of money out of nowhere, they take it and they go party with it. And then all of these friends from the woodworks come out, and they, and they want to do drugs with you. They want to have a good time with you. And so uh, uh, it started escalating very quickly. Yep, On January 7th, uh, that's the day that, that uh, I ended up separating from my son's mother. And uh, uh, I remember after that, I still had quite a few, uh, bit of money. And so we would party. And I had my brother living with me at the time. I had uh, uh, guys from high school that I still sometimes would skate with, not very serious, but just go have a good time with. I had them coming over. Uh, We started battle rapping. Uh, I I introduced them to meth. uh, And uh, uh, one time we stayed up a whole week straight, uh, or I did. and, And some of the guys, they didn't, but I did. And uh, whole week straight, no sleep. Uh, one of those nights, uh, uh, we're battle rapping, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm uh, humiliating some guys. Man, you could just see it on their face. They don't, they don't like what I'm saying. There, there's no, there's, there is no restraint. There's no self control. Uh, all, all bets are off, and people are getting embarrassed. And so, it's not a good situation. Uh, we get into some arguments, whatnot. And then one of the guys, his name was Alok, that's what we called him. Uh, He was working on an instrumental on the laptop. And uh, um, I told him, hey, slow down the melody because I'm from Texas, I like Houston rap, I like slow beats. And so uh, he started to slow it down and then he changed it. And I said, man, it sounded good, why'd you change it? And he like just completely ignored me. I'm like, man, this guy's stubborn. And so I grabbed a piece of paper and I started asking these guys questions. We stayed up the whole night on drugs that night. And so I asked this guy some questions and uh, I'm asking him, when is somebody going to listen? And they, their response to me, this guy's response, someone's not going to learn unless they're ready to learn. And so my goal of asking them questions is I'm going to write down their words, their answers, and I'm going to put it in their face. And I'm going to say, look, man, this is you. You're stubborn. And so mm. what ended up happening is I kept asking them questions. I actually still have these papers. It was two papers. Uh, and and uh, on these, these answers that they're giving me, they're being very honest. And so when you're a battle rapper or when you're a rapper, uh, you got to keep it real because if you don't keep it real, you're going to get caught up and somebody's going to embarrass you. And so these guys are telling the truth. And so I'm writing down uh, some statements about struggles that people go through, the reasons why people won't listen, the reason why people are stubborn. But then out of nowhere, the light bulb goes on and I see that this paper is nothing but truth. And so I start asking myself, where's this truth coming from? And so uh, uh, during that time, Uh, I had a lot of confusion I had a lot of frustration a lot of arguments uh, with uh, my oldest son's mother and a lot of lies were going on Uh, people were doing things behind my back I I couldn't prove it I just had that uh, instinct right that sense and so uh, uh, here I am frustrated confused my life is kind of falling apart and so I start looking for the truth and uh, um, Uh, I started asking people like, hey, man, what's up with this truth? What do you think about this? The fact that it's all truth and people weren't really getting it. And then a little bit after that, I remember I went to my mother's house. I I met my sister. I wasn't in good terms with them because I was on drugs. I didn't want them to see me like that. So I I kept some distance. And um, I remember talking to my sister. I said, hey, what do you think about this? All all this truth on this uh, paper. And uh, she said, my professor said, what's true to me might not be true to you. And so she's given me the argument of, of re- relativism, mm. which at that time, I didn't know that's what it was. Uh, but I was uh, in, in my heart. I'm like, no, nah, man, there's something called truth that's uh, objective. That it doesn't matter what you believe. It's still true. But I'm not a Christian. Nobody's witnessed to me. I'm just yearning for truth. I want stability. My world is spinning. And I want something that's not moving so I can uh, regain, uh, you know, clarity in life. And so that's what started me
2: on the journey for truth. Well, that that is absolutely incredible to me. This is not a story that I hear very often. Um, You know, you were so bound and you were lost, you know, with, with the drugs and just, so I, I guess what I'm wondering is, what do you think opened you up to this hunger to know the truth? It was it was how dark it was. It was it was the pain
0: that I was going through. Uh, yeah, yeah, I was getting high, and, and and for for a lot of people, they would say, "Man, you were living the life." You know, I was selling drugs, making money. I had a, a ton of weed in uh, uh, my freezer. Uh, I guess trying to keep it fresh, and whatnot. I had lines of cocaine. Uh, all over the table. I had joints rolled up, uh, crystal meth. Uh, I had people coming over with bottles of, of uh, Jose Cuervo and and I had all that. I had uh, friends coming over to buy drugs so I was making money. I didn't even have to pay for my habit because I was making enough money. And so uh, other people were paying for my habits. And, and most people would say, man, you were living the life. That was the party life, going to house parties uh, and, and, and different things. Uh, but I was in a, a lot of pain, man, a lot of emotional, spiritual pain. Uh, during that time, I was busting my butt trying to to provide for my son, working 58 hours a week. And uh, I, got, I got really good on that job that that company, they ended up sending me to Lafayette, Louisiana to go fix a, a, a conveyor belt on a forge, on a, I forgot what it's called, a barge, a barge over there. And then they sent me to north texas and so all that's going on and i'm busting my butt but my son's mother i think she went outside of the marriage to this day i don't have proof about it uh um and so uh it, it was with people who were close to me and so uh, i was devastated i the, the evidence was there here i am i'm trying to be responsible i'm trying to take care of, of life uh, and have a good foundation and uh, going through that pain, and uh, uh, I remember one time that she said, this is just to show how, how real it was. Uh, to my face, in front of other people, she said, even if I did, you'll never find out. And so, I mean, that's pretty self-incriminating right there. Uh, but, it, but it's true. And so, uh, I'm going through this pain. I'm confused. I'm frustrated. I know what the truth is, but I can't put my finger on it. And that frustrated me even more. And then uh, I remember asking my brother, and this is where God started to really come in. I remember asking my brother, what's going on in my life? Why is my life falling apart? My brother is 10 years older than me. And uh, he said, he told me the biggest trick the devil pulled is convincing the world he doesn't exist. My brother's not saved at the time when he tells me this. Where did that come from? Yeah. My, he's not saved. He's not saved at, at that time. Uh, just a few years ago, he got saved for a little while, but then he went back out to the world. Uh, he's not saved. What he's doing is he's quoting a movie. But my brother's a genius, man. My brother, he was a gang member. He was with, the, with uh, Ambrose he, and uh, got locked up. He had friends die in his arms uh, uh, there in San Antonio. And so I saw all of that, uh, him go through that, uh, come over to my house with a gun, whatnot, But he was a genius. He was very, very smart, straight A student in school. And uh, anyways, he told me that he's quoting a movie and he's being cool. He's trying to be cool. He doesn't know that he's quoting Revelations 12, the deceiver of the world. Mm. God knows. And God, God in that moment, God opened my eyes. And God showed me the world, like very, very quickly just shows me the world and says, yeah, look at the way everybody's living. They're all living like they're going to get away with their sin. There's no consequences. They can live however they want and that hell doesn't exist. And the devil wants them to live that way, convinced that he doesn't exist. There's no consequence to sin. And I remember when my brother said that, man, here I am. I'm a drug dealer. I'm a battle rapper. I'm filled with anger. uh, I'm tearing people apart, man. Uh, and, uh, I remember I was like, I could see the silhouette of the enemy, the devil standing next to my patio doors one leg up, one leg down, just chilling, man saying, yeah, you work for me. That's right. And, uh, I remember I was like, man, it's that that's not going to be for long. Uh, I just, you just know it's is not right. During that time, I remember sitting there at the table when my brother said that. And going through all the pain, this thought comes into my mind. Now I know where it came from. It came from God. Uh, the thought was, do you want your son to taste a tablespoon of the pain that you're going through right now? And my and my answer mm. was no. Mm. Not not do you want him mm. to go through the full-on pain, but just a little bit of the pain. Do you want him just to taste a little bit? And my answer was no. That pain was horrible, man. It's is indescribable how, yeah. how bad it hurt and uh uh so that's where i was i was confused i was frustrated and that's why i was like hungry for truth like okay where is it at how can i get it
2: wow that is um an incredible story i i'm, I'm just thinking what a gift it was that you had your son at yeah. this time hmm. because if yeah, not man. this could have gone a much darker direction you know it could have gone into self destruction but uh, because he was there because you have that that uh you yeah, know that reason purpose to live. in your yeah. life this is what is going to steer you in the right <clears throat> direction so how does this hunger for truth how does it connect to the gospel yeah man i told i told my
0: son he's he, he's my hero and in one sense he really is a part of it and so uh I took that paper, I talked to my sister. She said, yeah, truth truth is different to certain people. I still understood that, uh, no, there's something that's truth, but I couldn't articulate it. And so I was frustrated, uh, I was, in, I was, I was in tears, man. This is how desperate I was for truth. In that conversation, I was in tears. I left my mother's house and I'm headed back to my apartment. And when I'm driving back to my apartment, uh my, my mother lives on hunt or she lived on hunt lane at that time and there's this little trailer home church there it's a methodist spanish church and so on the side of the church there's a white cross and uh, i take a i had an old school slide phone and i take a picture of the cross and then i look at the picture on my phone it's tiny tiny screen man and uh, it's a little white dot on the on the phone and so I drive, I I turn around, I go to the the church because I want to get this picture. I like photography, I like art ever since I was young. And uh, when I drive into the parking lot, there's two pastors that are leaving. One of them is named uh, Brother Macario and the other one is Samuel Lopez. And uh, I drive into the parking lot and I get a better picture of the cross, which by the way, man, I wish I can get my hands on that picture. It was a supernatural picture. It looked crazy. It was like a lit up cross. It was a dark night. And the cross was just like coming at you. And uh, then those guys, they come up to me. You got to you got you to gotta, uh, remember, I look like a mess. I'm, I'm super skinny because of meth. Uh, I'm, I think I was probably wearing a, a muscle shirt at the time. I have a, a Honda passport, a SUV, the back windows busted out uh, I probably smell like smoke Uh, and here's this guy just coming up on this church property they probably think I'm gonna vandalize it or something and they come out real quick hey how can how can we help you how can we help you and uh, I don't know how exactly we got into the conversation but I told them about what I was talking about with my sister and this desire this hunger I have for truth and that's where everything began to click he uh, Samuel Lopez he told me he said you want to know the truth I said, yeah, man, I want to know the truth. He said, you want to know the truth? He said, I'll tell you the truth. The truth is God. He never lies. He cannot lie. He cannot contradict himself. He said, the truth is God's word. It doesn't contradict itself. He said, geniuses walk the face of this earth. They try and prove the Bible wrong, but they cannot because God doesn't lie. He said, it predicts the future and it comes to pass exactly as God predicted it because God doesn't lie. God is the truth. And I never really heard it like that before. And so uh, I say, okay, okay, okay. God's the truth. I wasn't convinced at that moment, but it was like the beginning of the journey to, to, to come and look for truth, which is rooted in God. I left that night uh, and then I went back home. This guy didn't pray with me, didn't do anything. We just had a conversation, probably exchanged numbers. I don't remember the details. Went home. And I went on the balcony where I I did all my drugs and it was a cloudy night and I rolled up a fat joint and I smoked it and I was smoking that joint. And this is how bad of a stoner I was and how bad I was hungry for the truth. I'm smoking this joint and I'm thinking to myself, man, I have believed so many lies in my life. How do I know that I'm not believing a lie right now that I'm getting high and I'm just smoking some paper? You know what I mean? And I kept smoking <laughs> and then uh, uh, I started looking for God it, that I think that man he told me read your Bible get a Bible read it and so uh, I asked him where you know where do I start said start in the New Testament and I started reading Matthew and I got to uh, Matthew chapter 6 uh, verse 33 that it, it, uh, it got my attention it's what really really opened my eyes it says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the things that you need will be added unto you. And it stopped, me in, my, it stopped hmm. me in my tracks. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I said, wait a minute. My life's falling apart right now. Everything is breaking down. I said, God, you can't lie. You said if I put you first, that you're going you're gonna to take care of me. You're, all these things that I need that you already know I need, I don't even need to mention it to you. You're going to add them to me. I said, bet, I'll put you first, God. And so I, and, and so I put him first. I started, I started reading my Bible like crazy. I, started, I, I read Psalms 119. And uh, I really related to David because uh, everything was coming against him. He had people that were uh, coming against him, whatnot, and, and God was his refuge. And so I was like, yeah, man, I can understand that. And, and God became my refuge. And I was just hungry for the word of God and so i started reading the bible like crazy i read the, through the gospels real quick my imagination was uh, uh spiked it was super alert uh, i was able to see you know jesus walking with the disciples uh, it, it it became supernatural to me it became very real to me and uh then uh I'm, I, I go outside on that balcony where i'm smoking weed before now i'm reading my bible And there's a neighbor across the parking lot from me. I forget her name. uh, But her boyfriend, his name was Marcos. He's from Louisiana. He's from the boot. That's what you call Louisiana there. And uh, I used to smoke blunts with this guy. And now she sees me reading the Bible. She says, hey, you need a job? I'm like, yeah, I need a job. And and, uh, she basically says, uh, uh, come over. Come over to my apartment. I'll help you get a job. And so... I go over there. She says, I work for Chase Bank. I've been working there for 10 years. She says, I can get you in. Uh, She says, I got Marco's other friends in, but they made me look bad. She said, don't make me look bad. I said, no, 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 no. Just give me a job, man. (laughs) And so, uh, man, what an opportunity. I'm telling you, man. So this is how God, this is how God works, man. He put everything back together. Um, I did the, uh, the, uh, I did the uh, application, whatnot. I was working at a telemarketing company, West Telemarketing, uh, while I I did that. Uh, And then uh, about three weeks later, Chase calls me. They say, hey, we want to have an interview with you. I go into the interview and uh, we do a personality test. And they come out to me. And this has happened to me a couple of times, man. They come out to me and they say, they're looking at me a little strange and they're like, Uh, God's my witness. They said, nobody scored this high on a personality test. Like, we haven't had somebody score this high like this. And so uh, I didn't know until later. God changed my mind, man. I'm thinking different. I'm thinking right. And so there's a favor there. And so we go into the interview. I do a role play with her about uh, customer service, taking care of people's problems with their bank account. And we have such a good interview that I'm walking out and I'm closing the door. The door's cracked just a little bit. And she says, hey, don't tell nobody, but you got the job. And immediately God speaks to me and tells me, if she knew that you were on crystal meth just a few weeks ago, she would never confidently tell you, you got the job like that. God said, I did this. And I say, wow. yes, sir. And he told me, he told me, uh, people are going to tell you it's coincidence. that it was just happen chance uh, or whatever. And uh, he said, no, and he said, don't believe that I did this. And so I say, amen. And so I, I began to give him the glory and, 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 and give my testimony. And uh, I'm st- now I'm hungry, man. I'm hungry for the truth. I remember I went there to the uh, uh, training class there at Chase. And we have a lot of people there. And uh, I'm witnessing to them. And it's not like I'm forced to witness. to; bro, It's just overflowing. And I'm witnessing to them, to the whole training class at the same time. Uh, uh, and uh, it's getting convicting. And w- what was amazing is they never really came against me. They knew that they couldn't because it was supernatural. It's like Jesus was sitting right there with me, and uh, nobody had the audacity to try and come against it or fight it because it was Holy Ghost, man. And um, I remember one of the ladies there i had i had a 1990 passport it was broken down i put it in the mechanic shop i gave them about two thousand dollars i got it out it had a over uh what is it a blown head gasket and so yeah those are really difficult to fix and so i got it out it still wasn't fixed so this lady in my training class at chase she ended up giving me a ride to my apartment and so here's this uh you know, skinny, uh, ex-drug addict, you can tell I'm still wrong, man. My hair is incredibly short and uh, I still look like a a little bit of a thug, you know, a punk, so so to speak, uh, but this lady can see God in me and she can feel it, she she sees me minister to the class. And so she ends up giving me a a ride to work, which is interesting, man, just this last October, we went to conference, I'm at Olive Garden with the landowner of this building that uh, I'm in right now in Vietnam. And that lady, and the lady, what? yeah, the lady that walks into the Olive Garden is the lady that gave me a ride to work. And so I'm like, man, I know her, I know her. And then I'm like, oh, no, that's the lady that gave me a ride to work. When I first got saved, So I went and introduced myself, and she remembered me. It was crazy, man. It was a, such oh, a sweet goodness. reunion, man, a little taste of heaven, what heaven's going to be like. And so uh, uh, that's, that's the way it was for a while maybe about a month. And then somebody gave me a brand new vehicle. They gave me a Suzuki Forenza, my my mother, man. She gave me a Suzuki Forenza, it was a 2005 Forenza. And this was uh, uh, 2006. So literally it's a brand new vehicle, all black, got a sunroof, got, I I think I had got some rims for it, some gunmetal rims, man. I love that car, it was nice, man. But, But the idea is that when I made the decision that I'm gonna put God first, that, that he, uh, he said, I'm going to give you what you need. I know what you need. I'm going to take care of you. So here you go. He, he gives me one of the best jobs in America at Chase Bank. Uh, and then he gives me a vehicle. And I remember when I read that verse, one of those uh, requests was a wife. Well, I met my wife at Chase Bank. That's where I met Roxanne, which is so interesting, man, uh, the day that eric's uh mother had and, and and i separated was january 7th come to find out later that's my wife's birthday and so i don't know how all that is connected i still think it's cool man it just shows me that god's involved man <laughs> god knows what's going on wow and so uh yeah that was that and then during that season uh right before I had went to Chase. I had a $900 balance with my apartments. They were going to evict me. They gave me the three-day notice already. And then I went into the office, and there's just this favor on my life. And I tell the management office, you know, what's going on in my life, whatnot. And I I got saved. I'm turning things around, whatnot. And they told me, they said, don't worry about the $900 balance. Just give us $100, and you're fine. It's okay. So, So what? Apartments don't do that, man. They will evict you real quick. And so, uh, and again, all that was is God, and God is in the background watching this happen and communicating to me. You, you keep me first. I'm going to take care of you. And at that point, after those three big blessings, because I didn't know my wife was part of the blessing until later on. After those three big blessings happened, I was like, "All right, God, you got my attention." What do you want me to do? I'll do it. And uh, I began to ask questions.
2: Yeah, funny you yeah, should. Have you know? asked.
0: I, I began to ask questions to God, and uh, I, I said, OK, God, you are who you say you are. Heaven is real. Uh, people are blind, they're deceived just the way I was. I said, how do I tell them? How do I inform them? How do I get their attention? And I remember it was a Sunday morning. I'm having this conversation with God while I'm sitting in church. While the pastor's preaching, I'm talking to God. And in the sermon, this the preaching of the, uh, the feeding of the 5,000, God is speaking to me. And God's telling me, give me what you have. I don't have much. <laughs> my life was jacked up. Give me what you have. Put it in my hands. I'm going to break it, which... I've found out later on that's where all the trials and the opposition, the hindrance, the religious Christians that like to come at people, uh, was involved in that, people who didn't want me to to get married to my wife. God said, I'm going to break it. You're going to be going through some trials, but then I'm going to bless it, and then I'm going to multiply it, and I'm going to meet the need of the 5,000. And the idea is that he's going to reach the world or the multitudes through my life when I surrendered to him. So I said, all right. And I remember in that sermon, uh, God's my witness, uh, I saw a line, man, because I, my desire was for the world. I saw a line go from, the, from North America, United States, all the way over towards the top of Asia. And it was a line going like this. I saw this in my mind and I'm like, yeah, amen, let's reach the world. I, I don't know that I'm gonna be in Vietnam about uh, t- 14 years later. God knows, uh, but the idea is I'm I'm just going to put him first. And uh, then, you know, reading the Gospels where Jesus says, I am the truth, where he says you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And it's exactly what happened to me, man. So I fell in love with the truth, even and, and I learned to stay in love with the truth, meaning when I'm wrong, I have to tell the truth. I have to look myself in the mirror and say, you know what, you're wrong, because I know as soon as I get away from the truth, I'm going back to that chaos, and I don't want to go
2: back there. And so, yeah. Right. Man, well, th- so what's interesting to me is that it sounds like this journey was, well, you tell me was was there was there any other like. Um, any, anybody like instructing you, but it, it, from what you described, it was kind of like you experiencing God, reading the Bible and, uh, and not a whole lot of other instruction <laughs> around is, is that That's the, case. the case?
0: That is, that is absolutely the case. I told people the vision as soon as I got that, that vision and, and, and I heard God, I have that paper too. I wrote down in the sermon, uh, February 26, 2006, the day i surrendered completely to god and, and the calling the feeding the fight i have that paper as well i told the, i told that church wow. it was a, an all spanish methodist speaking church i told them that uh, <clears throat> about the vision and they looked at me like ah oh, that's nice you know that's that's cute you know kind of deal and i'm like yeah and i'm like what well, yeah and you I'm on like, the head. what the heck like this is this is god man like god wants us to reach the world we can do this it's so real to me and uh, uh, they, they didn't get it. And so they didn't have a, the, the vision the way they should. And they didn't have discipleship. And so those two big ingredients were missing in that church. because of that, although I'm a radical convert and, and, and in a very real sense, God led me over there, I didn't stay there. I ended up backsliding. I, I, some days I would uh, go to church smoking a black and mild. I'm still raw. I, uh during that time, I was on probation. I had to go report every month and uh, give a, a drug test, which is incredibly humbling, humiliating. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, it was whack. And so going through all that trial, still going through all that pressure, I wasn't delivered from everything. God let me taste some consequences. And so, but they wouldn't challenge me to stop smoking black and miles and serve God. And what, what ended up happening is I met my wife February 2007. This is a year later. I met her. I'm still reading my Bible. I'm still hungry from God. I don't wanna go back to the chaos, but I don't know how to be discipled. I don't know how to fulfill that vision. And so I'm reading my Bible. Uh, we would go to bars. There's a, a bar over there uh, used to be there called Legends Sports Bar. And I'd go there, I'd be reading my Bible. My, my wife thought at the time she thought, who's this nut who walks around at Chase Bank with his Bible? Plus looking like a thug, you know, really, really short hair with the edge up, you know, like, who's this guy? And so I went to those bars at the same time with her. And I remember witnessing to the waitress or the, the, yeah, the waitress. And it gets Holy Ghost, man. She starts to get convicted. uh, And then out of nowhere, she stops me. and She says, hey, hey, wait a minute. So why are you here? And I remember when she said that, man, this deep conviction just fell on me. And I was like, I just felt bad man and still reading my Bible and I remember one time I went to her her house and her mother her father her brother and her sister they're there and they see me reading my Bible on their kitchen table and they start asking me questions and God shows up and uh, you can feel the presence of God you can feel peace you can feel that there's hope that God has direction for all of our lives and so her sister uh who by the way is homosexual they're still homosexual to this day her sister and her brother and i I love them like crazy man they're family to me and so uh her sister asked why don't we go to church and i said why don't we go to church and then her dad said yeah i heard about the door well i had heard about the door too a few months back maybe about a, a year before uh and uh my mother had went to the door to pastor ruby's church because her coworker had uh hit her son pass away alec alec uh Lechuga. and so uh, uh she went to the funeral and i remember when she went to the funeral she came home and she's weeping and she's like mijo i love you keep serving god and she, because the guy was around my age and so she had told me man she told mm. me that's it that's a really nice church. And I remember I'm radically saved and I'm, I'm listening to her say, that's a really nice church. And I was like, okay, there must be some, some substance there in order for her to say that. Cause she wasn't going to church at the time. And so I filed it away. And then that day that my father-in-law says, I heard about the door, I said, oh yeah, I heard about it too. So we started going October, 2007 and never stopped going And then slowly. God began to show me that this is where the vision is that I gave you. And this is where you're going to get jammed. (laughs) This is where you're going to get discipled. People are going to dig into you. And uh, I remember I was shacking up with my wife. And January 2008, just a few months later, uh, Chris Todd, he was the assistant pastor at the time. He challenged me and he said, uh, separate until you get until y'all get married and uh, so we did that lasted two years and eight months nobody's counting that was a long time and it it was because at the age of 18 uh, I had a shotgun wedding so I was already married I was previously married and so uh, I had to go through the divorce and at that time God had already spoken to me uh, very clearly I tried to do due diligence I tried to to invest in that relationship and, and, and take care of that and uh, there came a point where uh, my uh, oldest son's mother said to me I don't believe in one God I believe in many gods and when she told me that it was like God in the next sentence said if you stay with her you will not serve me and so I and so I started to have this peace, like okay it's okay if I move on. I'm not going to be damned and go to hell. God is, and, and that's where, at, during the same time, somebody showed me 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and where it says, God has called us to peace. If the un- unbelieving one leaves, let them leave. Do not chase after them, uh, or else you're, you're basically going to damn your own soul as well. And so God gave me some peace to move on. And so we get there into in uh, uh, Pastor Ruby's church, january 2008 pastor stacy is preaching a revival he prays for me to get filled with the holy ghost he opened he had opened the altar call He said anybody wants to get filled come uh i, I ran up there because I, I i was watching this i was observing this it's it even it caught him off guard a little bit because i was still raw man i'm wearing a polo shirt i ain't got no tie on i'm a raw sinner you know i just want what god has for me and so i said he said you've been wanting this right you've been asking for this i said yeah uh, I said, if it's of God, I want it. And so uh, he laid hands on me, prayed for me. I got filled immediately uh, in that service. Pastor Roman was still there; he was getting ready to go to Bolivia. Uh, and then the next service, he came up to me and he told me, he said, "Did, did uh, Stacy give you a word?" And I was raw, man. So he said, "Did Stacy give you a word?" I was like, "Yeah." He gave me a word. I was like, "Hip hop still." I was like, "Yeah, word." You know, we talked. You know, I don't know <laughs> what's, what's a word. And so it kind of right. off guard and he was like, shook his head. And he was like, yeah, anyways, God gave me a word for you. You're going to get sent out quick. There's going to be people who are going to work against you. They're going to fight against it. They're not going to like it. He said, you need to stay around Christians who take their walk with God serious. This was January 2008. I've only been in the church for two, for like two months, two and a half months. And it uh, gives me that word. And what is sent out? Like, you know what I mean? I'm still a new convert. And so... Right. I catch on and I'm like, okay, I get it. I get it. And, uh, it, it, happened exactly how we said we went through a lot of trials, uh, people working against us, people who were saying it's not right for you to move on with Roxanne. You need to go back to, uh, whatever, but God already said no. And so, uh, people thought like we were sinners or whatever, and, uh, just fighting against God. Uh, but, uh, I started getting discipled. That's where I saw the vision and, uh, uh after we got married we were bible study leader assistants for uh, Gabriel Aguilar and Tiffany had a blast with them and then uh, the next year we were assistants for um uh, Hector and Nicole Ortiz which was such a blessing to be uh, uh, ministering close with him and then uh, uh while we were assistants the second year uh, r- random sunday morning uh, Pastor Ruby calls me into his office, tells tells me he has an opportunity for me and says, Tampa, Florida has opened up an opportunity. And so uh, uh, I, I uh, he asked me, where's your wife? I said, she's at home. Our kids are sick. She, He said, can anybody go watch your kids? I was like, yeah. Uh, so I called Roxanne. I said, hey, Pastor wants to talk to us. And I go and I pick her up and I she gets in the car and I'm like, yeah, he has an opportunity for us in Tampa. And she says, shut up. so so i said okay i said, all right and so i just drive to church and then we walk into the office mind you i'm in crutches because i blew out my acl at the time and so i we walk into the to the office and uh uh pastor goes did you tell her and then all of a sudden she starts to stay like okay this is not a joke this is for real and uh we have about 15 minutes i I told pastor when do we need to get back to you he says you got 15 minutes i'm gonna announce it right now and so
2: yeah oh my gosh
0: and so we were like yeah let's do it yeah okay we'll, we'll do it and so uh we got announced uh we go into the sanctuary and uh we sit down here i am with my crutches on the side sitting down in the chair And then uh, pastor says, yeah, Chris and and Jennifer, Todd, uh, they've been ministering there in Tampa for four and a half years. We thank them for their sacrifice, for their investment. And now taking over their place, Eric and Roxanne, and you can hear the church all as one body go.
2: (gasps) Yeah,
1: they're like, what? (laughs) Bro, it was hilarious.
0: And I'm standing up in crutches. God has a sense of humor. (laughs) <laughs> and uh yeah man that's how we got launched out.
2: Wow. What what an incredible testimony. You know what I love about it is your commitment to the truth is what started this journey and it's what con- continued you down the road. And uh you said it man Jesus is the truth and the truth will set you free, but along the way the truth will no- knock you up a few times. Yeah. It'll it'll beat you Beat you down and it'll yes. hurt you, but if you stick with it, you know the truth will set you free, and that—that's what I'm hearing yeah. from your testimony. And then, uh, a thought on that is because I was
0: hardcore truth, I wasn't very gracious because it was just truth, 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 truth. Truth is not merciful. Truth is you're either of me or you're not. But then God later on He opened my eyes. He said, He basically said, Eric, full of grace and truth the word became flesh. while the mind was full of grace and truth it's a both it's a balance I said, oh okay i'll be patient i'll be merciful with people all right
2: yeah that that can be a yeah. difficult uh balance yeah. to find but, uh, man, I've got, I've got some questions about your pastoral ministry and uh, want to hear about how you eventually made it to Vietnam. Uh, but we're going to say goodbye to our free, free listeners, and uh, we're going to jump over to the premium block. If you want to hear the rest of that, go hit that subscribe, and uh, you support World Evangelism with your premium subscription. We want to encourage you to do that, and we want to say thank you, man, for the incredible testimony, and uh, we want to thank you for listening. If you will give us a few moments to take a break and we'll be right back with part two of this incredible Testimony Tuesday.